0: Welcome to Visiting Professors, this is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In this series, clinical investigators visit oncologists in practice to attend a separately arranged and consented education rounds, and in this case, Dr. Joseph Sperano met patients with breast cancer from the practice of Dr. Alan Astral, and after the clinic, both physicians chatted with me and reviewed each case. To begin, Dr. Astrow presents a woman where the key management issue was whether to employ adjuvant chemotherapy. This is a
1: 67-year-old woman who underwent a right breast lumpectomy in June 2009, was found to have a grade 2, 1.3-centimeter infiltrating duct carcinoma, strongly positive, HER2 negative, she had LVI, and one of 11 axillary lymph nodes had a 0.2-centimeter which means a 2 millimeter, I always get this mixed up, but that 0.2 centimeters is 2 millimeters, a 2 millimeter axillary node metastasis. So the stage was T1C, N1, mic, M0. And that's where it was when I first saw her, 67, not anxious to receive systemic chemotherapy if she could at all avoid it. So what was this woman's life situation? This patient is originally from Bolivia, came to the United States two years ago, came into her visit today with her daughter and her granddaughter.
2: Well, the other thing is actually that, first of all, they traveled by subway to get to Maimonides Cancer Center, and that they live in the Bronx, not too far from where I work, and they travel all the way to Maimonides probably about an hour and a half to two hours by train. I I know because I've done that train ride before, and she's gotten all of her care there, including today's visit. And the reason for that is because somehow some member of the family got some care delivered at Maimonides, and they were very happy with the outcome. And so their entire family continues to travel to Brooklyn from the Bronx to get their care, which is quite a schlep. Yes. Maimonides is especially
1: welcoming to people who have come to the United States from other countries. I think it's said that we have like 60 languages spoken at Maimonides Hospital.
0: So of course, a major question with this woman is whether it's chemotherapy, which you say she was not too excited about. So what did you do?
1: Well, this was a case where I thought, even though she had a positive node, I thought it would be good to get an Oncotype DX recurrence score. So we sent it, and it returned, as one might expect, intermediate, 24. So the way I had thought about her case was that if the score was low, I would recommend hormonal therapy alone. Anything but a low score would lead me to recommend systemic chemotherapy. So with an oncotype score of 24, LVI, and a micromet to a node, I suggested systemic chemotherapy, and I treated her with TC for four cycles. How did she do? It was really hard for her, really, really hard. She had a lot of pain, you know, total body pain, but she was a real trooper, and she took all four cycles, got full doses, got them all on schedule.
2: This is with peg or Yes,
1: I did give her peg filgrastrum. yes. I know there's some data in both directions of whether they really need it, but when I once asked Steve Jones about it, he said that he's had a couple of patients run into serious trouble with neutropenic fevers if they don't get it. So now when I treat people with TC, I do routinely prescribe PEG. So she did not have any problem with neutropenic fever, but she did have, you know, serious constitutional symptoms, particularly pain. But she got through it. Then she recently completed a course of radiation therapy to the breast. And I just started her a few weeks ago on remidex. So her chief complaint today, having been on arimidex for two weeks, was severe bone pain, bone and joint pain.
0: So there are so many things to talk about with this case. Maybe we'll take it from the, the end back. Any comments, Joe, about arthralgias with AIs? First of all, in terms of management, and second of all, the question of, you know, is there a relationship between symptoms like arthralgias and benefit in terms of adjuvant therapy?
2: Certainly a well-recognized complication of aromatase inhibitor therapy, median time to onset of symptoms for the 30 to 35% or more who develop symptoms is about two months, so her symptoms are occurring a little earlier. There's some evidence that they may be more common in patients who've gotten prior adjuvant taxane therapy and may be more common in Hispanics, and she fits both of those bills. There's also evidence from some studies that those who get joint symptoms from these agents may enjoy a better disease-free survival, although that's not been consistently shown in other studies. Still uncertain regarding etiology. What's clear is that there is a clear pathophysiologic process going on that's been demonstrated by studies showing that these patients can develop tenosynovitis and joint infusions. You can manage them acutely by using generous doses of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which tend to work better than, say, just a centaminophen or narcotics. So the management should include anti-inflammatories. There's some evidence that vitamin D may have a role, and that women who have lower 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels may be more susceptible to these symptoms, and they may be ameliorated by adequate supplementation in those settings, but that's not been a very consistent finding in most studies. I tend to routinely check 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels just because I think it's important to make sure that they have adequate levels if we're going to be using agents that produce bone loss for the purpose of bone health, and that there are secondary benefits that relate to having less arthralgias, and that's great.
0: Did she have a bone mineral density
1: done? She had normal bone mineral density, yeah. yes. One other question for Joe. What do you think of these reports of using high-dose vitamin D therapy for AI-induced arthralgias, you know, the 50,000 units weekly?
2: Well, one of the striking things is the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency. Anywhere from 60 to 70% of women in the populations that have been studied are either deficient, having levels of less than 10 nanograms per mil, or insufficient, 10 to 30 nanograms per mil levels of vitamin D. And the generally recommended doses of vitamin D supplementation are probably inadequate. In fact, in this particular woman, was taking vitamin D supplements. Yes. One of the things that came out of today's visit was that we were going to check a vitamin D level. There's some pathophysiologic potential basis for this in that if with extremely low vitamin D levels, you can get a reflex increase in PTH and essentially get a secondary hyperparathyroidism, which can produce bone pain. And I've seen examples in my practice, actually, of women who were severely vitamin D deficient who had hyperparathyroidism, which was corrected by... Vitamin D supplementation and had dramatic relief of their symptoms. So, a lot of us have anecdotal experience like that. Some of that has been borne out in some reports, but for some reason it doesn't seem to be a consistent finding.
0: So, what exactly did she describe to you today and what did you do about it? Well, she
1: had you know, severe bone pain, particularly in her shoulders. I encouraged her to take NSAIDs. She has some Percocet at home, which she had actually been taking for the pain. We drew a vitamin D level, and I encouraged her to try to continue with the Arimidex in the hope that the pain would ameliorate with time or that we would find some way to treat the cause of the pain.
0: What about the TC, Joe? A lot of people use that in node-negative situations and in situations like this. What regimen do you generally use, and what do you think about the issue of the growth factors?
2: Yeah, I think it's a very reasonable, evidence-based regimen. I think a lot of us in the field would like to see another trial that confirms what was seen in that trial, but it was a reasonably sized, well-conducted trial that was done by a group whose practice, I think, reflects community practice in the United States. So I think the results are real. The impression that a lot of people have is that TC may be somewhat more toxic for whatever reason than what's been described in that paper. In fact, there are some reports, letters to the editor type reports that have described higher rates of febrile neutropenia. And I think all of us have our anecdotes of a patient here or there who had complications from TC. And I think that's made many of us more apt to use a colony stimulating factor when one chooses TC, particularly in an older woman. But that also comes with a price in terms of bone pain. Yes. That could be even more problematic when you're using dose-dense therapy. Yes. It seems to me to be somewhat less when you're using it every three-week regimen like TC. But it still does occur. The point is to warn patients about it so that when it comes, they're not surprised by it. And when they do develop the symptoms, that they use a nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory rather than acetaminophen or narcotics, for that matter, because the nonsteroidals are much more effective in terms of relieving colony-stimulating factor type bone pain.
0: Finally, what about the oncotype in the node-positive situation, Joe? We just saw some data in San Antonio, this follow-up data from the SWOG study that had been presented a couple years before. Vapor actually was simultaneously published in the Lancet Oncology. Can you talk about what they saw in that study and what it means to you in terms of your own practice?
2: Sure. That was a trial, an old study performed by the U.S. Intergroup led by Swag, that focused on postmenopausal women who had ER ER-positive, lymph node-positive disease. They were randomized to receive either tamoxifen or cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and 5-FU given either concurrently with tamoxifen or with CF given first, sequentially followed by tamoxifen. That study demonstrated a disease-free and overall survival benefit for the addition of chemotherapy. So in this analysis, they focused in on the groups that received tamoxifen or CF followed sequentially by tamoxifen because that group did somewhat better than the group that got concurrent tamoxifen with chemotherapy, which we now know is probably a suboptimal way to sequence chemotherapy and endocrine therapy. And what they found was very similar to what was found in the B20 analysis in node-negative patients with ER ER-positive disease randomized to TAM versus TAM plus CMF. That is a disease-free survival benefit only in patients who had a high recurrence score. Likewise, with a trend towards a better outcome for chemotherapy in those with an intermediate recurrence score, but it was not statistically significant. So I think this does provide some additional supportive evidence that for individuals who have a low recurrence score, as Dr. Astro said, that selected patients who have node-positive disease could be spared the use of chemotherapy. And I think this is the ideal patient to consider an oncotype who has node-positive disease, an older woman who's sort of a borderline and a borderline age for recommending adjuvant chemotherapy.
0: Now, where are things right now with your Taylor X study in node-negative tumors and At one point, I heard some discussion about the possibility of allowing patients with node-positive tumors into that.
2: Yes, the trial is going very well. It was activated in April of 2006. It has accrued over 10,000 patients with approximately 6,000 or so randomized. And we expect the accrual to be completed by the end of the year and to have a definitive result from the randomized portion of the trial sometime in 2015. There is a higher proportion of patients in the randomized group who were non-adherent with their assigned treatment. The rate is about 13%. In other words, about 13% of patients who were initially assigned to hormone therapy alone have elected to take chemotherapy and vice versa. So because of that, we had to under the guidance of our statisticians, we needed to inflate the sample size from 4400 in the randomized group to 7000 so that we can be really confident in that result when we do have a result. And I will point out that although the 13% non-adherence rate does sound high, it's actually not dissimilar to the non-adherence rate seen in other phase three trials, randomizing patients to very disparate treatments. So for example, in the B06 trial, lumpectomy versus mastectomy, the non-adherence rate was about 11%. And in the ECOG transplant versus no transplant trial, in high-risk node positive disease, the non-adherence rate was in the same region.
0: What about the issue of this same question and the role of oncotype in patients with node-positive tumors? Is that something that you think should be studied in a trial? I recently became aware of the fact that I guess the Italian group, the Michelangelo group with Luca Gianni is running a study looking at that question, hormone therapy versus chemo followed by hormones in patients with node-positive tumors that are low recurrence score. What do you think about that?
2: Yes. When we looked at this situation within ECOG, we discussed within the intergroup making a modification to the Taylor-X trial to include node-positive disease. However, I was very concerned about lumping those patients in because we do know that the prognostic information provided by recurrence score does not correlate well with the prognostic information provided by classical clinical pathologic features. And that there was a danger of missing out on the opportunity to spare low-risk patients chemotherapy by throwing these higher-risk patients who had node-positive disease into the mix. So what we proposed was to have a separate stratum and to ask independently in patients with one to three positive nodes, a similar question as Taylor X, can we spare chemotherapy? When we did the calculations, our statisticians estimated we would need about 8,900 patients in that part of the study, which was really untenable. So we decided not to do that. This was early on when the data from the SWAG study just became available. There are plans to try and, however, initiate a separate study using a somewhat different design. And we may see that study come to fruition in the next year or so, but right now it's still in the planning stages. What about the
0: issue of oncotype in node negative tumors outside of a protocol setting? What have you seen, Joe and Alan, in terms of how that's evolved over the last few years?
2: It's very interesting to see how different individuals will interpret or utilize the information that they get from a score. I will see patients who have nearly identical scores come from similar backgrounds, similar life situations will make completely different decisions based on a score. And the closer that you get to the mid-range, the more likely that is to happen. Even at the extreme ends, there are some patients who may have a very low risk score who may still want chemotherapy, and some patients who have a higher score who may not want chemotherapy. But for the most part, I think the score is helpful when it produces a result that's at the extremes of very low or very high, which provides a clearer treatment path. And for those who have a mid-range score, it's a very individual thing. My impression is that the younger the individual, the more apt they would be to accept chemotherapy or to choose chemotherapy, even if they have a low score. And for the older patients or patients who may have some comorbidities, they're more apt to choose endocrine therapy alone when they have higher scores.
0: How about your experience, Alan?
2: Well, the sorts of patients, node-positive patients,
1: I would be tempted to send an Oncotype score on would be patients with one positive node patients who have comorbidities, which might make me concerned about excessive toxicity from chemotherapy, and older patients. And those are the sorts of patients I have sent Oncotype scores on, even with a positive node.
0: Joe, what about the issue of quantitation of ER and also actually HER2 assay through the Oncotype? They report this. Do you see any clinical value in it?
2: I do see clinical value. It's not unusual for a patient, say, to have a core biopsy followed by a definitive procedure. And it's also not unusual to see some discordance in those results. So I think the information provided by the RT-PCR component of the oncotype, specifically for ER and PR, can be a tiebreaker in those circumstances. More so, of course, if the score is at the extreme. Mm -hmm. But even when you have a score that's in the mid-range, if you have a discrepancy, say, between the core biopsy and the excisional biopsy or lumpectomy or mastectomy specimen, that the information obtained by the RT-PCR can serve as a tiebreaker.
0: What about HER2? Have you seen any cases that were thought to be HER2 negative and the oncotype came back saying it was HER2 positive?
2: I personally have not seen that.
1: I've seen that, and then it hasn't been clear what to do with the information. You know, You don't know which one to believe. In the studies were based upon IHC and FISH, the studies that showed that Herceptin is beneficial. Where I would tend to use it would be someone who's on the borderline. So someone with a FISH of 1.8 or 1.9, where I'm not sure which way to go. If you then had the oncotype telling you that the RTPCR was giving you a high HER2 level, that might lead me to favor Herceptin for that sort of patient.
2: There was one study published by the group from Kaiser that looked at the correlation between FISH and RT-PCR by the oncotype assay, and there was excellent correlation between the two. There was another trial by ECOG where the correlation was not quite as strong. They really should track together because, obviously, the FISH test is looking at gene amplification. The oncotype RT-PCR is looking at RNA expression, and the IHC test, chemical test, The Hercept test is looking for protein expression. So those three should pretty much track together.
0: What about the issue, Joe, of using Oncotype and making decisions about neoadjuvant therapy? I guess there was actually some work presented in San Antonio suggesting that core biopsies, you get pretty accurate results in terms of Oncotype Do you see any current or maybe future role of RT-PCR assays like Oncotype in use in terms of neoadjuvant therapy?
2: There are a number of molecular signatures that have been developed that have attempted to predict benefit from specific therapies, particularly in the neoadjuvant therapy, which is an attractive model because you can get a very short-term readout and you don't need to do these trials that take years to complete. Having said that, It's not clear to me that anything behaves better than just knowing what the ER, PR, and HER2 status is for a tumor. And it's clear that patients who have ER ER-positive disease are much less likely to have a pathologic complete response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy than, say, a patient who has triple negative disease. And in HER2-positive disease, many patients now who would be candidates for preoperative chemotherapy would get trastuzumab as part of that therapy. And that really greatly improves the likelihood of seeing a pathologic complete response. So right now, for the types of patients that we select for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I don't see the results of that test changing that decision about whether to use neoadjuvant chemotherapy or being useful in helping us make a decision about which specific chemotherapy regimen to use.